for the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Kate Scott. This is the update. On today's show. A little over a week and a half ago, I was lucky enough to be a part of the first NHL game here in the States produced and broadcast entirely by women. In the lead up to the event, a lot of folks wanted to talk to those of us in front of the camera, like game analysts, Olympic gold medalists, AJ Malesko, Kendall Coyne Schofield, our studio team, Catherine Tappan, and three time gold medals with Team Canada, Jennifer Bottrell. And if you wanted to talk to me too. But to me, the person that everyone should have been talking to was our director, Lisa Seltzer, because she is an absolute legend in our industry. So much so that NBC asked Lisa to come out of retirement to work the broadcast and who I learned in a really special pre-production dinner the night before the game, inspired and mentored almost every other woman who helped us make history that Sunday night. So, since I'm back to asking the questions instead of answering them, that's right, we're talking to Lisa today about the historic broadcast, about her industry journey, and about what you young kids, who we understand are scared with the sports world shutting down for a bit, what you youngsters can do to be prepared for when the sports world starts back up again. It's Wednesday, March 18th. Oh, Lisa, it is so great to catch up. You know, I texted with uh, AJ earlier, and we both agree that it feels like years since we were together in Chicago, even though it's only been a little over a week. So how are you settling back into retired life? Because you're back to not working again. It's great. And, you know, with the forced isolation, it's pretty darn good. <laughs> I'm, I'm used to it. <laughs> I don't have anywhere I have to go. Mm-hmm. So right here on the couch talking to you is my favorite thing at the moment. Well, I love that, and I love your availability because of that. Um, So let's start with how you first heard about this, because everyone has heard way too much about my story the last couple of weeks, how I got the call from NBC, and I told them they were crazy for asking me to call hockey for the first time. What was your call like? Who initially reached out to you from NBC? John McGinnis called me, and honestly, I just thought he called to say hello because he was in Anaheim getting ready to do a game, and I was having lunch with his production manager the next day. So I thought, oh, she mentioned my name and he's just calling to say, hi, isn't that nice? So we say hi and exchange pleasantries. He goes, the reason I'm calling, I'm like, wow, there's a reason. We're doing a game on the International Day of the Woman and we would like you to direct it. And I said, I'm in. I didn't have to think twice about it because As I mentioned, the only reason I would come out of retirement is to promote women in the industry or to mentor women. And I was um, flattered that they reached out to me. It was really nice. And you didn't have to. You know, there's other women directors. To take you all behind the scenes just a little bit, John McGinnis, who Lisa mentioned, is a senior producer at NBC. And uh, a couple of my favorite moments from the weekend, one was after the game back at the hotel on Sunday night. John and Lisa are sitting side by side as we all raised our glasses to a job well done. And seeing the look of pride in your eyes, Lisa, you and John, for putting together this incredible team, that was one. And another favorite moment for me was at our wonderful pre-production dinner the night before. You arranged it at Harry Carey's in Chicago. And how every woman, again, most everybody knew each other because everybody but me works in the NHL night in and night out. So it was kind of a reunion. And I was the outsider. So I, I wanted to ask each woman about their journey. And Lisa, every single one that I spoke to Every woman spoke to me about how you have had a major impact on their career. Well, first, that's probably one of the nicest things I could ever hear. You know, if you think back on what you would want your legacy to be, that's exactly what I would want my legacy to be, that I helped someone along the way. So that's 
very kind of you to, to pursue that and to say that. I had so many wonderful moments in the three or four days that we were together. And I'm trying to isolate one, but it'll come to me. I might have to drop that one in later. All right. I think I can allow that. Did you have any say over the other women who made up our crew, Lisa? Yes, I did. For instance, um, Denise Marble, who did um, the tight follow camera, I launched the Mighty Ducks. She was my A2, which is an audio assistant, the first year of the Mighty Ducks. And she came to me and she said she wanted to run camera one day. And she did. And she did the Olympics with me in Salt Lake. And she subsequently has done many Olympics and is sought after by many directors. So I really wanted her to be on the crew because we had been together on and off for many years. Like Lisa Menzies, who does EBS, she was on my travel crew back in the ESPN days, as was Amanda. There's many, you know, little stories. Liz Farkason, who's from the Bay Area, um, was on a travel crew with me. And I've tried to bring women along when I can. For instance, uh, Christina Klamborowski, who did graphics, and Meg Bucken, who was the associate producer, we've all traveled together. So they said, give me your wish list. And some of the women I wanted weren't available because they work at other shows. But they came together pretty nicely. Well, that was the coolest part for me, Lisa. We talked briefly over the weekend about how much this meant for both of us. But hearing all of those women and how you have helped them along the way and how hard they have all individually worked to get to where they were and where they are. That just gave me so much more confidence and calmness going into the call. So I I love hearing that. So where did your career start since we now know that it's come to an end and you're thankfully and gratefully in retirement? Exactly. I got out of college where really cable was just starting. ESPN, I think at that point, was about a year old. And there were entry-level jobs. And I had had an internship in Cincinnati and at another station. So certainly right place, right time. You get the first job, then you get the second job. And you, as you know, being a woman in the industry, you have to work harder and longer than anybody else. So, and I was very lucky. I had some, some men who were fantastic mentors to me. And I had a little notepad, a little piece of tape in front of my director's station with their names on it. So I would never forget where I came from. And I talked to two of them this week and the wife of another one. So it was a full circle for me to come back to Chicago because I started in Cincinnati and Sports Vision was starting in Chicago. It was on on TV, which had a box on your TV. The technology has completely changed <laughs> yeah. a million fold since then. Mm-hmm. And I got hired there because they were just starting. So right place, right time, work hard. Like with everything in life, right? Right. What were your first jobs? Did you start producing and directing? No one starts producing and directing. I was a runner. I brought Cokes and hot dogs to TV trucks. That's how I started. And then I graduated to pulling cable on the sidelines. Wow. You know, I did a little bit. I was an audio assist. I did graphics. I was an an assistant producer, an assistant director, associate producer, 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 director, then director. Because in Chicago, they only had producers and directors. So you had to have both skills. And that's why Disney hired me is because I could do both. You worked your way up from Cincinnati to Chicago. I know you worked 
as you were saying, Sports Vision, and then I think it was Sports Channel, and then I think it was Fox Sports Chicago, kind of like it was out here in the Bay. It was the same channel and the same people most of the time, right? But it was just kept changing names. <laughs> kept changing names. And then in 93, when Disney was launching their hockey franchise, they had hired me to be their first director of broadcasting and produce and direct their product. And then stayed there three years and then went freelance and worked for ESPN for many years. Okay, so let's talk about making those choices because I know how much you love Chicago. What was it about the Disney and the Mighty Ducks gig that that pulled you away from Chicago, took you there? And then what was it about the ESPN gig that took you to ESPN? Well, I was really happy producing and directing the Blackhawk games. And I loved it. And I look back, I still love it. But, you know, there wasn't an opportunity to work for a club. And at the time, I wanted to work for a club. So when Disney was hiring, I contacted them, they contacted me. And I thought this would be great to be able to just launch a product from scratch. So once I did that, and I was happy, they they then, I think, got the angels. And it just became a job. I was happier in the truck, not doing management responsibilities. So I went freelance and was lucky enough to basically get an audition from ESPN. So I directed a game and they watched me direct a game and then I got on their roster of directors. And then when NHL went to Versus, which is now NBCSN, they reached out to me because basically the job at ESPN wasn't going to continue. There was no NHL for me to direct. So I went there basically until last week, was still there. I know you helped out with the WNBA when it launched on Lifetime. How did that come about? That was so fun. I was happened to be in New York. I interviewed with Maureen Hassett Lindsay and Brian Donlan. And they said, we want to put together an all-female crew. I'm like, sure. But they started with a pre-Olympic hockey game. And AJ was on that team. It was USA Canada. Mike Emmerich did the call. And it was previewing the 1998 team that won the Golden Nagano. So that was my first show with Lifetime that rolled into the WNBA and an all-female crew for that. And off the record, I'll tell you the story of that hockey game. You'll like it. <laughs> it's a good one. Oh, I can't wait to hear about that. And was that kind of the audition for the Olympics as well? Because I, I tried to keep like a timeline of all your work, but I, I know it all blends together. That Olympics on uh, 98 was just random. They just called me. I had never pursued an Olympic at all. And then one of the guys I knew that I did a, some show with called me up, asked if I'd be interested. And I was very interested. And I met with them and they flew me to St. Louis because they wanted to do test games down there. And I was in Chicago at the time and I loved it. It was great. But they, you know, they took a lot of world feeds and, so they didn't need any directors. So I was one of the producers on that. And that was really fun. Because they actually sent you there, right? As opposed to, I know a lot of broadcasts these days are from the mothership in Stanford. What they do now is they bring the cameras in the world feeds back to the U.S. And you work in a studio. In 98, you went there. Mm -hmm. The technology wasn't there to do it. What were your goals when you were starting, Lisa? Because hearing you talk about the Olympics gets me all excited because calling the Olympics is one of my dreams and goals. What about you when you were first starting out? I wanted to direct a Super Bowl. 
but you know, after a while you realize that's never going to happen. So readjust your goals. And I want to direct the Stanley cup finals. And I did 101 final games in a row, actually 102 final games in a row for NHL international. So that was a wonderful experience and one I'll always take with me. What are some of your favorite events going off of that? Favorite events or broadcasts that, that you've been a part of? One of my favorite games I ever did was the outdoor game in L.A. That was so fun at Dodger Stadium. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of work, but it was one of my favorite shows I ever did. How come? It was huge. It was really big. It was pretty. I mean, the ice and the green of the field and I had a lot of different announcers, a lot of moving parts, and there was just so many things going on. They had um, beach volleyball players in part of the outfield, and they call them people who improve the atmosphere, atmospherics. So we had a ton of atmospherics and a lot of great talent on that field. It was fun. Yeah, I actually read about that broadcast this morning when I was prepping for this, and we know that all reports aren't always correct, but I believe that it said as Lisa Seltzer prepped for the Kings-Ducks outdoor game at Dodger Stadium, part of your prep included downloading all the KISS and Five for Fighting music that your iPod could hold. <laughs> what was that about, Lisa? Well, KISS did one intermission and Five for Fighting did another part okay. of the another intermission. But I had a list of song, their song list, so I just downloaded those songs. To direct music's different than directing sports. You know, there's, and live music is different than directing something that's pre recorded. You have to know where the guitar solo comes in or where the lead singer is going to come in or something like that. And we would sit through, I'd listen to the music ad nauseum, and then we would sit through the rehearsals and tape the rehearsals. And the assistant director would count into a music shift. So, soloist comes in in five seconds, soloist in stand by for this and so it's a whole different thing so you have to be really on your game for that because just you know you didn't get a second chance you have to cut it one time get one time live i was wondering why you were listening to so much five for fighting that's that makes a lot more sense now <laughs> like you said always always have to over prep and overwork and piper my pup is very excited about that big five for fighting fan apparently um what was the biggest challenge or, or challenges that you came across in your career? You know, a lot of times, and I think you'll probably find this in your career if you haven't already, that you think you're the best person for the job and you don't get it because someone else did simply because of your gender. And I have had people come back to me years after that decision was made and said, we made the wrong decision. You know, does that make you feel any better? No, not really. <laughs> but at least you were validated that you did think you were the best person for the job at mm -hmm. that time. And maybe you don't get it so much later in your career. I mean, have you ever felt like that? Yeah, I definitely have. Or not always because of gender, just, you know, in TV sometimes, hair color, last name, all different things play a role. And sometimes I... The talent. Yeah. Way I don't know, harder, harder. I don't know about that. Just different. Well, there's more of you, <laughs> so it's harder. <laughs> a lot of competition for those jobs. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, the people who helped you, and you don't have to limit it to one or two. You can list as many as you want, because I think that's important for kids to hear, that we all need kind of an army behind us helping push us forward when 
we're starting out and even when we're kind of in the middle and different phases of our career. So your mentors, the people that you think about when folks like me ask you who helped you in your career? Well, I think you have to start with your parents, you know, that they were the kind of parents who said, you can do anything. You can be anybody. You can, you can conquer the world. So you have that as your base, you know, and my, I'm the youngest of three girls. So my sisters did it. I wanted to do it. My husband, who's incredibly supportive and only wants me to succeed. And then the people who I'm not related to, Bob Pulford, who was a general manager and vice president of the Chicago Blackhawks for decades. And he would step in there as a coach every now and again when the coaches got fired. He made it okay for me to travel with the team on the charters, on the buses. Without him, I would not have the career I have, for sure. Because no women at that time were traveling with the teams at TV. He just made it all right. And then um, Mike Finicaro, who was the head of Sports Channel America, hired me to be one of his directors against the advice of people above him. Said we don't want her. And he did it anyway. And before him was Brian Sipe, who's still directing. He helped train me. And as he said to me this week, I just never saw gender. I just saw talent. How nice is that for someone to say to you? It's incredible. That's wonderful. And I I tell people all the time, because people often ask about my female mentors. But like you said, we, much more in your case, and still today for me, we need male champions, because a lot of times they're the ones who are in the rooms with the decision makers, deciding on who's going to get the job and the gig and stuff. So mm, that's wonderful. Thank you for listing them off. Let's go back to our game. How did you start your prep for our game after being out of the game for a little while? Oh, my God. <laughs> I recorded every I recorded every NBCSN game. <laughs> yep, me too. And AM pregame show. And I watched them and I took notes about what transitions went where and how did they get from a full screen graphic back to play and how did they do this. And that started beginning of January when I got the call. Then I asked uh, John McGinnis if I could direct the game just to get my directing chops before I did the March 8th game. And he graciously let me step in and direct the game. And then I kept recording games and kept watching games and Went to NHL.com and read everything I could read. I watched your tapes a few times. (laughs) Oh, geez. (laughs) Did I scare the crap out of you? (laughs) I'm like, I really like her voice. Um, (laughs) And I talked to AJ and I talked to the producer and emailing back and forth. So to get to March 8, I started working the beginning of January. And I had, you know, I was a casual fan again. So Mm -hmm. I just immersed myself in it. Yeah, that's what I did, too. What were your hopes going into our broadcast? I wanted the show to be clean and to be a showcase. And I think Renee and Caitlin, the producers, really did that. I thought it was a really clean show. I thought it got the message across. And I didn't think it was a novelty. Yeah, I was really wanting it to just be a a great show that maybe sounded and looked a little bit different because of who we were as announcers. But... Otherwise, to just be a show and not not try to come across preachy or anything like that. And, and I, I thought we did a really good job of that. I agree. And I think, like I said, the producers walked a really fine line about 
giving it the right amount of notoriety without making it um, a spectacle. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's why it, it got such a good response. Okay, last couple for you, Lisa. For a young person who wants to get into producing or directing or graphics or all the awesome stuff that goes on in the truck, which I'm kind of jealous of at this point. I know it sounds weird because things have worked out okay for me on air, but, but I'm fascinated by what you all do. How would you advise a young person these days to get into that stuff? Well, experience breeds experience. Anything you can do at the college or high school level to be around the industry, or if you want to be a graphics artist to take those courses. I had two calls this week with women who wanted to be directors. We had long talks about what you do now they're already in the industry because you just don't walk in and expect to be a director. These are skilled women who want to move ahead and not be a producer. They want to be a director. So we talked about that. There's direct one thing, put that on your resume. Then you direct two and three and four. It's hard to get to the front of the truck. So if you're in the back of the truck, say you're in EBS, do something to be in the front of the truck and go from there. For instance, you're at the Pac-12. They have shows that they bring the cameras back into the studio and you direct those. Those shows have to have a director. So maybe you start there and then go out to the truck. I know I did both those shows, studio and remote, just direct one thing. As far as entry level goes, take whatever job they offer you. And just get your foot in the door because someone is going to leave and then you can get your other foot in the door. It's hard though, but streaming video and and there's all sorts of avenues now. It's not just, you know, when I came out, it was over the air and cable. Now there's so many other services. So there might be more entry levels. I just don't know. I know it's kind of unfair throwing, throwing the entry-level question at you since it's been a few years since you were the entry-level. <laughs> I just know that's the... Uh, <laughs> that's, I mean, if, it's hard for me to answer these days because when I was getting in, it was, you know, you go be a weekend sports anchor in Yakima, Washington, and then the, the weekday guy moves up a market and you get to be the weekday person and then you move up. But I just know that, especially with what's going on now with this unprecedented event and time that we're all in, a lot of youngsters who are getting set to graduate are understandably scared because there's no sports right now. So, yeah, just wondering if you had any advice for them. As you talk about these unprecedented times, doesn't it open a few other doors? Don't you think that maybe the corporate people want to do their meetings remotely? So someone has to direct that. Someone has to put up the right slide and someone has to show the speaker. Mm. There's all sorts of things to direct that would get you into live directing, which is news and sports, you know, corporate videos. What about church services for people who can't go to church? You know, there's there's a lot of things that can be on your screen that don't have to be in a truck yeah, or don't have to be with crowds of people. You could think outside the box and use this to your advantage maybe to help somebody. See, that's why you've been successful all these years, Lisa, and still are, because you're you're thinking outside the box, and you always have. Well, the box is too small. Let's <laughs> <laughs> all think bigger. Amen. Amen. Oh, on that note, uh, I feel like there's a zillion more questions I could have asked you. Is there one you, you wish I would have asked you so that you could have told a certain story? No, but this is what I wanted to say to you. 
the people should look at your career and give you a big standing ovation. You did the right things. You worked up the right way. When a scary opportunity came, you grabbed it. And while I just met you, I couldn't be more proud of you. I think what you did was an amazing, difficult, and groundbreaking thing. So congratulations. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for for saying that. And I got to tell you, I was most excited out of everything after I got over the fear of hockey. I was most excited to to get to work with you because every single person that I mentioned that I was doing this with said, you get to work with Lisa Seltzer. Oh my gosh, she's the best. You're going to have a blast. You're in such good hands. So thank you, as I told you in person, for for making me feel so comfortable in that terrifying booth. And I hope the next time we work together, it's on the golf course and and not not the United Center. You and me both. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on, Lisa. How lucky was I, right, to get to work with such an incredible, influential, kind trailblazer in the broadcasting industry. And I hope those of you who are also in this industry or if you're wanting to get into this industry, I hope you take Lisa's words to heart because we know that right now is scary. But I love what Lisa said. If you think outside the box, who knows? This can also be just the break, just the time you need to get that foot in the door. Coming up in the next few weeks here on The Update. Well, obviously, with no live sports for the foreseeable future, we're going to be diving deep into the storytelling that we were actually hoping to get to do when we launched this podcast last year. So in the next few weeks, we're going to be joined by A's writer Alex Coffey to learn more about the heartwarming relationship between first baseman Matt Olson and his longtime friend Reese Blankenship, a non-speaking autistic man who Matt communicates with through letterboarding and touch. Senior editor Daniel Brown stops by to share the story of a former Stanford runner whose random act of kindness at a grocery store last week inspired thousands to look out for others during this difficult and scary time. And on our next show, it has already been a wild few days in the NFL. So we're going to get caught up on all things free agency with NFL writer David Lombardi. All right, that's your update for today. Thanks again to my new buddy, Lisa Seltzer, for joining the show. Thanks to Adam Copeland and Steve Berman for filling in while I was away. Great work, guys. Really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening today. We're really looking forward to bringing you some wonderful stories the next few months that, you know, hopefully will bring a smile and some joy to your day as we all adjust to this strange new normal. For Brian, Tanika, all of us here at The Update, I'm Kate Scott. Stay safe and healthy out there, okay? We'll talk to you again on Friday.